Well, good morning everyone and uh, a very warm welcome uh, to this uh, writing contemporary fiction session from inspiration to publication. Quite a, quite a long haul, but we will attempt to uh, spend some time in conversation uh, this morning exploring that, uh, that long haul. Um, and the, uh, the different writers uh, here uh, in front of you, uh, their experiences of, of that trajectory. Um, I'm delighted to be chairing this panel of uh, Oxford writers. Um, we have until one o'clock. Um, we are planning to leave a very good chunk for questions uh, in the latter part of our session. Uh, you know, perhaps sort of a half an hour. So uh, please do have your questions ready. And I've been asked to say that when we come to the questions, if you could kindly wait for a microphone to be whizzed in front of you, um, then that would be that would be very helpful um, indeed. So my name is Claire Morgan. I direct uh, Oxford's Master of Studies in Creative Writing. Um, my novel, A Book for All and None, came out with Weidenfeld in 2011 and in paperback in 2012. It is a, uh, some people say, it's a literary detective story um, uh, which uh, focuses on um, uh, a relationship uh, to be uncovered between the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche and the novelist uh, Virginia Woolf. Um, our panellists um, around the table, Sam Thompson, James Benmore, and Samantha Shannon, um, are all Oxford writers, and uh, are all, uh, we're all connected um, in one way or another. Um, Sam Thompson here is a tutor on the Master of Studies in Creative Writing. James is a graduate uh, from that program, and Samantha, who has recently um, uh, completed her first degree here at Oxford, um, I think an amazing feat to just you know finish your finals and um, uh, you know get your your novel accepted. Um, Samantha worked uh, with Sam Thompson um, uh, for for part of her undergraduate degree, so we are we are all um, linked uh, together there. I'm going to ask um, <coughs> Sam, James, and Samantha um, to just introduce themselves uh, very briefly. Um, and following those three introductions, um, each will read um, just a very short first opening part of their novel so that we have uh, a sense of the kind of writing um, that we're, we're thinking about here. So um, uh, Sam, then James, then Samantha, if you could just introduce mm. yourself. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, hi, my name is Sam Thompson, and as Claire says, I'm uh, in my day job. I'm I, I teach English at uh, the university here. I teach English at St Anne's College, uh, and I also do some some uh, creative writing teaching on the masters uh, program as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I taught some months actually. We we were um, I was your tutor for three years. Uh, well, uh, only just up till this summer. Um, uh, so that, that's that's what I do some of the time. I also uh, have written this book, which is called Communion Town, uh, which was published in 2012, uh, and it's um, it's a it's a novel in a way. It's a, it's a sequence of stories. Is perhaps the more accurate way to, to describe it. It's a sequence of 
uh, stories all set in the same imaginary city. And um, they, they, one, one of those kind of books where you know have a cycle of stories which sort of knit together in various ways and, and bounce off each other to make <coughs> what you might call a novel. Um, and uh, so that was published a little bit more than a year ago now. The main thing that happened to it after being published was that it was long-listed for the Man Booker Prize in 2012. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so that's what I Right, my name is James Benmore. Um, I'm the author of Dodger, this book here. Um, I first got into writing uh, through the Open University uh, back in 2008, where I did a creative writing module. And then following on from that, uh, I was lucky enough to be accepted into the uh, master's course here at Oxford, um, uh, where I began writing Dodger uh, as part of my uh, second year assignment. Um, I was lucky enough to get published um, soon after that, get an agent, and um, I, the second book, uh, so this book is about the Artful Dodger, from Oliver Twist, it's his continuing adventures, and the uh, second book, Dodger of the Dolls, I'm writing it now for publication next year. Hi, um, I'm Samantha Shannon, I'm just, uh, as Claire said, I'm a recent uh, graduate at Oxford University, I did English Language and Literature, um, graduated uh, just a few weeks ago actually. Um, the Bone Season I wrote while I was in my second year at university. I got the idea just after my first year, and then it's just been published on August 20th, and uh, that's me. Marvellous. Um, <coughs> well, perhaps each of you would like to read your, your first page. Should we do it in that order, Sam? Sure. James and Samantha? Okay, so I'm going to read uh, to you the, the, the first uh, few paragraphs of the opening section of uh, this book. Excuse um, me, if you're going to use it. How's that? Got me? Okay. <laughs> um, so, so I'm going to read uh, the, the first few paragraphs of the first section of this book, uh, and I, I hope it's fairly self-explanatory. But um, so this, it's a, as I said, it's, it's a book that's kind of made made up of uh, a lot of different stories told in a lot of different voices, and this is the first voice that you hear in the book. Uh, it's about a, a traveller arriving in the city. Uh, and I, I hope it explains itself, but it goes like this. It's, the section is called Communion Town. Do you remember how you came to this city, William? Think back, because we need to agree on what happened right from the start. I want to help him out as much as you do, believe me. I know you're worried, and in your place I've been the same, but I can promise you that conditions are actually quite tolerable in there. So let's approach this calmly. When I've said what I have to say, I'm going to offer you an opportunity, and I hope you'll be able to respond. It was early morning, remember, when you and Nicholas arrived. Did your spirits lift at the first sight of what you travelled so far to reach? A world of grey dawn, twilight and blackened stone above, rainwater dripping from the girders, pigeons sulking in rows, and strangers spinning from carriages to gather on the concourse, disoriented. Even at that hour, the Grand Terminus was full of migrants, anxious to enter the city. They formed queues for processing, shambling in their soiled clothes, their heads twitching at the noise of the tannoy. I picked you out of the crowd right away. You weren't like the rest. With most of them, it's obvious. You can see it all in their faces as they offer up their papers for inspection, clutch their belongings, and steal glances at the carbines of the watch. You and Nicholas, though, you were different. I have an instinct for these things, and I'm seldom mistaken in the end. You mustn't be surprised if I seem to know a good deal about your life over these past months, maybe more than you know, than you know yourself. The fact is, I've been here all along. You won't have seen me, but I've kept a discreet eye on your progress. So why don't I go ahead and talk you through the way I see it? Then you can correct me on the finer points. Fill in the details. Let me know your side of the story. How does that sound? 
So, um, as I said, uh, this book is about the Artful Dodger. He narrates um, most of the book takes place six years after the events of the Twist, but um, this opening, opening page uh, takes place just before the end of it. We was a gang of six, and we were swooping through London crowds like low-flying jackdaws, fast, thieving, and beautiful to behold. It was the first day of May, and the people of the city was all dressed up in their, London, in their Sunday, Sunday finery, not least us, the happy students of the Saffron Hill School of Finders Keepers. We were scudding through the dusty lanes towards Covent Garden, where we hoped to find the choicest trinkets that London could offer, and we was all very much feeling that spring buzz. I was leading the thing, as was natural, and close behind me was my best pal, Charlie Bates. After him came Jem White, Georgie Blookers, and Mouse Flynn, and that, I now reflect, should have been all. Five has always been more than enough to work a spring crowd. In truth, the ideal number of boys to go find <coughs> was three. One to distract, the other to dip and pass, and the last to make the dash. But what with the day being so merry and fresh, we was all feeling companionable, and so was stuck together like toppies in sun. All of these boys was gifted in the art, and had it just been us, then it would have remained a very pleasant and productive morning. But we also had Horry Bell Tower dragging along behind us, and this stupid oak proved to be my undoing. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, my book, um, it always sounds a little bit strange when I explain it to people, but it does make sense. Um, it's about a 19-year-old girl living in the near future in 2059. Um, she's a clairvoyant, and the government, which is called Scion, is persecuting people who have clairvoyant powers. So it's told in her voice, and her name is Paige. I like to imagine there are more of us in the beginning. Not many, I suppose, but more than there are now. We are the minority the world does not accept, <coughs> not outside of fantasy, and even that's blacklisted. We look like everyone else. Sometimes we act like everyone else. In many ways, <coughs> we are like everyone else. We are everywhere, on every street. We live in a way that you might consider normal, <coughs> provided you don't look too hard. Not all of us know what we are. Some of us die without ever knowing. Some of us know, and we never get caught. But we're out there, trust me. I had lived in that part of London that used to be called Islington since I was eight. I attended a private school for girls, leaving at 16 to work. That was in the year 2056, AS127, if you use the Scion calendar. It was expected of young men and women to scratch out a living wherever they could, which was usually behind the counter of one sort or another. There are plenty of jobs in the service <coughs> industry. My father thought I would lead a simple life that I was bright but unambitious, complacent with whatever work life threw at me. My father, as usual, was wrong. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, I'll try and uh, project, I think, so please uh, let us know if you, if you can't hear uh, what we're saying. Um, I think that <coughs> the, those opening pages um, uh, demonstrate uh, what uh, a range of different kinds of writing um, uh, is coming from um, the writers around uh, around the table here. Uh, one thing that uh, struck me about all our um, pieces um, is that uh, they do, though, address what if worlds, the future, you know, fifty odd years hence, uh, the what if of the artful dodger, uh, the what if of uh, an examination of different aspects of a city, and in my own case, the what if um, Virginia Woolf 
had done and been this and Friedrich Nietzsche had done and been uh, that. Uh, so perhaps I could ask each of our panellists to elucidate a little um, uh, the nature of their what-if worlds and how they came to want to inhabit and explore these worlds. So James, I mean, you've uh, uh, taken Dickens after Dodger and sort of run with him, so to speak, and I know you started that on the programme, but why, why, why is that where you landed and that your world that you were fascinated by? Right, um, I guess I've always been a huge admirer of Dickens, obviously, um, and in particular, I love the criminal <coughs> contingent of Oliver Twist. I love Fagin and Sykes, He's So Horrible, and Nancy, and, and really Dodger. Dodger's kind of one of my favourite fictional characters. And when you read Oliver Twist, though, much as I love it, it's slightly disappointing in so much as Dodger's not really in it that much. He has his function at the beginning. He finds Oliver and he takes him to Fagin. Um, but once Fagin's in the story, which is pretty much two pages later, Fagin kind of takes control and Dodger's kind of a sideline character. He barely registers in the third act. He gets um, about two-thirds of the way through. Dickens has a really good scene where Dodger is arrested and uh, there's a trial scene that's very funny, and then he gets packed off to Australia. And we never hear from him again, even at the end of the book, where there's these very typical Victorian roundups of what happens to all the characters. You never hear about Dodger, and I just think that, for me, he's more interesting than Oliver Twist. You brought so, him back. Yeah, exactly. So I thought, if you could find a conceivable, plausible reason as to why the Artful Dodger would come back to London, that would be an interesting book. And more specifically, the thing that occurred to me um, and if you only know it from film adaptations, people don't always realise this, that uh, Dodger is packed off long before the end. Um, Bill then kills Nancy. Um, uh, he then dies. Fagin gets hung. And so his entire sort of criminal family, who he obviously loves, they're sort of killed in his absence quite soon after he's gone. They're all horribly destroyed. And so I was really taken with the idea of Dodger coming back and discovering how Oliver Twist ends and um, sort of having a completely different perspective on those events than that Dickens gives us, because Dickens obviously doesn't like the criminal <laughs> characters, he likes Oliver. Um, and But I always thought that the artful Dodger would, would be very sympathetic towards Fagin. Fagin, he would think, is uh, a very a character that gave him food, shelter, um, something to do. And so uh, I, I was interested in the idea of a slightly different perspective on that story and those characters. Fascinating. That, uh, that sense of wanting to give voice or further voice to someone to whom we've yeah. been introduced uh, uh, through fiction. Um, and of course, more simply, just finding out what happens to him next. And he's a great character. To, he's a criminal, so he's always going to be getting in trouble. So there's countless stories that you can Lots make of things going on. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and Samantha, um, different perspective. You're up there in the future. Um, uh, the what-if world of the future, sort of bang on the nose of the huge interest um, in the creation of fantasy worlds. And I think if I may borrow that book back, there's a wonderful quote from um, Harper's, a new breed of women authors are claiming fantasy for their own. Leading the charge is Samantha Shannon. Now, I wish somebody had written that about me. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, really, really, really fascinating. Um, but how then um, did you come to generate this interest? 
Um, it, it's quite a long story, actually. I got the initial seed of the idea um, when I was working in Seven Dials, which coincidentally is also where James has set quite a lot of his yeah. story. Um, and it's, I, I got the idea of, uh, there's a lot of shops in the area that sell crystal balls and tarot cards and things like that. And I kind of had this image of a society of clairvoyance. And I, it's quite a, the world I've created is quite unusual, because if you think of the steampunk genre, which is, to me, kind of inserting futuristic technologies into a Victorian setting. I've kind of done it the other way around, so I've inserted Victorian aesthetics into this 2059. And the reason I do that is because it's an alternate history novel. And in 1859, uh, an event happened that causes Paige's timeline to diverge from ours. So her London is very different, and I was interested in that. And also, I also explore a very depressing dystopian version of Oxford, which sometimes causes people to question my experience here. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it was just, I, was my dis I love world building, and it was a desire to kind of have this world that had been shaped in a completely different way to our world, but still had recognisable landmarks, which I call points of reference. So instead of creating a whole new fantasy world, like Tolkien did, which I think is fantastic, but it, it can be, for a dystopia, I think you need to think, you know, this could really happen and cause fear. So I wanted to layer a fantasy world over the existing world. Could people use the microphone? Sure. Yep, we'll, uh, we'll oh try and do that. Why don't you? Okay, Sam. Okay, how's that? Yeah, okay. um, yeah so... Uh, did you <laughs> yeah, not at all. I was, I was really going to say um, uh, that uh, uh, wondering whether um, there's any connection uh, between um, those kind of approaches and what brought uh, what brought you, um, uh, Sam, to, uh, to your communion town? Um, because... I know that your what if world um, does focus on, as you mentioned earlier, different ways of uh, telling stories, different literary modes. Yeah, it, yeah, that's right. And I mean, the, the book, my, this book for me, I think came out of, as, you know, as I think a lot of fiction does, out of a collision of two things, which you know don't look like much by themselves, but put together become something. Um, and in this case, it was, you know one interest that I had just in the, the kind of the experience of living in cities from my, you know, I, I lived in a few different cities over a few years in my, I guess, my early 20s. Um, and, you know, I, I was very just interested in the kind of sensual experience of living in cities and the ways that cities uh, mould the way that you live and, and the, the kind of creature that, that a human being is. Um, <coughs> so that, that was one thing. I just, you know, just wanted to kind of record the, 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 sen the sensuality of, of, of cities. Uh, at the same time, I was thinking a lot about problems about storytelling and kind of questions I had about storytelling about how stories work and about you know the, the way that any kind of story is a is a way of interpreting something and you know is a way of making a um, make, making and making over the world and the, the collision between those two kind of preoccupations led to this book which is a, a book in which uh, you have a, this, this invented city but uh, as the book goes on the it becomes a kind of kaleidoscope city it, um, the, 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 the way it looks changes the way it works changes um, because uh, as the book goes on, it, it, it kind of starts telling the story of the city over and over again, and, and you know it becomes a kind of series of sort of you know genre shifts. Really, it has uh, moments where it's a, a kind of hardball detective story or a classical detective story. Kind of moments where it's um, I don't know, sort of kind of dystopian urban fantasy kind of moments, I guess. Um, 
and, and it and, and other sort of more more kind of naturalistic moments and and so the, the this kind of one location just keeps on mu mutating through the book and and that's the way that it works um i i ended up therefore kind of stitching the book together from from a lot of different stories of a lot of different kind of characters so it's you know it, there's a story about that, that, that the section I read there is a sort of story about a, an immigrant and her relationship with the kind of paranoid government authorities. But then the, the next section of the book is about a folk musician um, who who falls in love, and then later on, you, you know, we have a, a, a guy who works in an abattoir. Uh, there's a yeah, sort of a, a detective who owes a lot to, to Sherlock Holmes, and um, and so on and so forth. Um, so so it's a kind of it, it's a, a book in which the, there's a lot of characters knitted together, but what they all have in common is that they they kind of live through this place. So, in terms of uh, of the books we have around the table, we've got okay, very much a, a London um, uh, Seven Dials base there. We've got um, a, a London and Oxford base here. Your city is it based on, as it were, the ideas of a city, sort of classical ideas of a city, or is it? Did you have a city in mind that you then subverted in some way? Well, it, the more interested I got in the idea of a city, I mean, I, I did read about that, and you know, sort of, I started to wonder, you know, what is a city when you get right down to it? Like, what, what is, what, what kind of phenomenon is it? So I, you know, I read a lot about that, and ended up, uh, you know, drawing on kind of ideas about cities. But I mean, the first place it came from was just, just notebooks from, uh, from walking around and living in cities. <coughs> and, you know, so, and, and I lived in Dublin, I lived in Edinburgh for a while, and I lived in Oxford, and you know, been. I know London quite well, um, so so you know all of those cities end up you know just little particles, um, all kind of meshed together to to make this place. Um, I I also had you know part of the fun of it for me was inventing a, a fictional geography and inventing you know fictional place names. So so I, you know you, you kind of you know a lot of stuff just taken off the page of notebooks and 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 weaved together into something different. Yeah, there are quite a few similarities sort of emerging here. I think uh, uh, in these very different. Um, these very different books, and um, I was thinking um, again of my own novel, A Book for All and None. Um, uh, it's sort of a fictional geography of, of ideas, although based, um, uh, based in Oxford, uh, amongst other uh, places. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think the notion of, uh, of uh, creating um, a different world that is recognisable, but but has patterns that um, uh, that aren't preset. Perhaps uh, preoccupies um, uh, all of us uh, to in one sense or another. Um, certainly, my uh, interest uh, was in how, how ideas are, are, are passed from one generation to another, um, and uh, my fascination was with the two lives of two extraordinary individuals, um, Wolf um, and Nietzsche. Um, and how the, the sort of uh, ideas um, uh, from philosophy may come into literature and be passed down in uh, concrete uh, form. Um, so I took considerable liberties with recorded history in, uh, uh, in doing so. And I imagine um, you take very significant liberties with recorded history. Do you, how, how does that work, Samantha? Um, yeah, one of the things I did was suggest that Edward VII was Jack the Ripper, which is uh, <laughs> not, not exactly uh, <laughs> traditional, although it does draw on the royal conspiracy about Jack the Ripper. I generally try to take aspects of real history and twist them in some way, so that's probably the best example. 
But um, I wanted to, even though it is a fantasy world, I wanted to create something that felt believable. And I had to think logically about the fantasy world. So I had to think, you know, how would America respond if England started saying that it was persecuting clairvoyant people? And it was, it was kind of a, a bizarre thought, because obviously it, it couldn't possibly happen, but I had to kind of draw on things like the Inquisitions and the Salem witch trials. So I did try to make it as realistic as possible to cause that fear and that sense it, that it could happen and create a, a properly immersive world. So would, would we say around the table, I don't know what you think, um, James, are, are we all drawing on... Um, our, our close acquaintance with certain literary forms and sort of playing with them in a new way. What, what's your thought? Right, yeah, well, definitely I am. I mean, I, um, I mean, you said taking liberties. I guess it is a bit of a liberty to take a famous character from one of the great authors and sort of for a first-time novelist to think, oh, I'm going to write the next bit. Um, and, but the way I thought uh, as I was writing it was um, when I was researching it and when I was thinking about it, I kept thinking to myself that I wanted to write a book set in Dickensian London as distinct from Victorian London. So sort of a world of the imagination that sort of was Dickens's creation. Um, so which obviously is London, it's the same thing. But what happened and what I really was attracted to the idea was that when the Artful Dodger in the first chapter picks the pocket that is the one that he's eventually arrested for, um, that it would be the pocket of Mr. Pickwick from uh, Pickwick Papers, <laughs> and that later on in the book he meets someone else uh, from one of the other Dickens novels, and that every time he steals from someone, it's kind of someone from a Dickens book. <laughs> and it doesn't happen as much as I thought it was going to happen when I first started planning it, but it happens enough that it's there, and if you know your Dickens, you might recognise some of the other people who brushes past. And it's an easy thing to convey because in those days that people wrote their names on their possessions, so when he gets home he can see who the person is uh, who, whose name he's picking out of a handkerchief or whatever. Um, so I guess in a way I was using a kind of sort of literary landmarks, like, you know, and there's a reference at one point to somebody goes to Coke Town, which is the fictional town in Hard Times. So I was kind of thought to myself, if it's in Dickens I can use it. That was kind of my my feeling like I thought that there isn't a ghost in the book but I remember at one point thinking there are ghosts in Dickens so I can do ghosts so that was kind of my role I guess so yeah so so wonderful uh, so, so uh, a whole rich Dickensian world a world of Dickens uh, to to geographize in a, uh, in yeah. a new way in terms of character. It made the whole world seem much more uh, concrete and kind of rich and, and expansive <coughs> than it would have been otherwise. Because, you know, most of the characters from Oliver Twist are dead, so uh, a lot of the ones that he would know. So there weren't too many people he could rub up against. Um, so, yeah, it was nice to sort of, like, create an idea of, like, Dickens's world as kind of in the margins, finding certain, you know, connections between them. Does he meet Oliver or sort of see He him? might do. He, <laughs> might <laughs> <have>. <laughs> he might do in the sequel. Okay. <laughs> Rather than in this one. But, but yeah. yeah. So. Fantastic. Um, well, I, I think in terms of uh, just exploring then uh, how these novels moved forward, we've got a sense of um, the, the ideas and the preoccupations and mm. the. Uh, where these novels have come from, and now looking towards wh where have they gone to, in as much as they, they've now come out and they um, uh, have a leadership, that exciting moment. Um, 
When you were writing the novels, I wonder how much you were planning in terms of a particular um, readership or, or not, you know, how much the notion of readership um, uh, uh, influenced you. And uh, Sam, uh, I get the impression that um, you started to uh, write and explore uh, in isolation, but tell us, uh, you know, what about your readership and what thoughts you had, if any? <coughs> yeah, no, I, I, I did write this book in the deep isolation of uh, doing a PhD at the same time, and I, uh, I mean, yeah, I wrote it very slowly and as a, just as a kind of, you know, uh, series of kind of experiments to please myself. Um, so I didn't have a readership in mind except, um, you know, myself as a reader, and, and I mean, it, it's. I do. I, I, Borges says something about um, you know how writing is is a, an extension, I think, of reading or another form of reading, and I I buy that at least in, in terms of my own experience with this book that you know I was writing in a way as a reader, just trying to to write in all the things that I liked as a reader, which meant that I meant that actually one pastiche was an important thing for me in the process of writing it actually that I I, I I thought of myself as trying on a lot of different voices. Um, and you know, I was lucky, and I, mean, I, I think probably a lot of writers do that. And mm. and it was lucky for me that what I produced out of that process was something which seemed to cohere enough uh, to, to you know to stand up as a book. Um, but you know, what a, I, quite often I thought to myself, okay, this this section of the book is is by uh, Dostoevsky or by Angela Carter or by M. John Harrison or or something like that. <laughs> and you know, I, I, that's how I wrote them. Uh, you know, it's and you know, it's absurd, of course, to say. I'm, I'm being Dostoevsky today, but, but, I, but I mean, you know, and of course you, you, you fail, uh, you know, you fail completely at that, but it doesn't matter because it's just a way of getting something written. It, it takes you somewhere, and, you know, in the process of trying on those voices, you, I think, you know, I, th what you hope, I think, is that you just find your way towards a voice which, which, become, which is something of its own. So a kind of ventriloquization, <laughs> which then leads you to your own your own voice, mm. um, uh, and in your case, not sort of thinking, oh, what is my readership out there, but thinking, how do I, how do I get this book into some kind of shape that might work? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think, of course you want a book to have readers, and, and you, once it's done, you look at it and you think, gosh, this, little, this kind of tottering thing is actually sort of alive, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to walk out into the world, and, and of course you want it to find readers, but I, I still feel as though the, the, the best way to, to do that is to uh, make it something uh, distinctive and idiosyncratic, and, and that the works according to its own rules, and and that means just letting it letting it kind of shape itself, and and not you know trying to second guess your readers. Um, I yeah. Well, I, I mean, I certainly I think that uh, in my experience of of uh, talking with a lot of uh, agents and publishers, is that the thing they look for is. Uh, you know, in the slush pile, in wherever, whatever comes to them, uh, the thing they look for is voice. Yeah. Mm. Is this is this its own person kind of thing, <coughs> in one way or another? Yeah. And that is completely in conflict with the notion that they also want the next J.K. Rowling or the yeah. next. <laughs> so, what 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 what's your experience in this, Samantha? Because you're right on the, as I said before, the nose of that huge interest in um, uh, in fantasy. Mm. But if I may say so, my sense of your uh, book is that it has a very distinctive voice. I didn't open it and think, oh my 
gosh, not another <laughs> fantasy <laughs> novel. We've read all this before. I didn't think that at all. Far, far from it. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a book that was written in isolation. I had previously written what I called a sci-fi romance epic when I was 15. <laughs> I don't know what that is, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but that was told in third person. And when I tried out The Bone Thieves, it was my very first time writing in first person. And although I, well, actually, when I sent it to my agent, kind of with great trepidation, I said to him, I'm not really sure who this is aimed at. Because I started writing it when I was 19, and the protagonist is 19. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, I wanted to sort of perhaps appeal to people who were slightly older than the young adult readership, which mm -hmm. generally has a protagonist between the ages of 16 and 18. And a lot of the characters are much older as well. You know, um, like Paige's best friend in the book is nine years older than she is. So it's, it's very much a book that is, it's got adult themes and adult characters. Um, so yeah, I kind of said to my agent, I don't know if this is up a young adult, if there is such a thing as up a young adult, or there's a, an emerging genre called new adult at the moment actually, which has been around since 2009, but that seems to have been largely linked to kind of erotica novels, strangely. <laughs> um, I think it's a kind of a byproduct of Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, and yeah, but I mean, it's officially published by Bloomsbury's adult division, and I was really pleased about that because it meant I was free to explore the adult themes that I'm hoping to look at throughout the series. And it is, you know, a self-consciously dark series. It's not like Harry Potter, which starts off, you know, quite happy and then gets terribly sad towards the end. You know, it's a, it's a dark series. And you've got, you, you have seven planned uh, there. Can, can you tell us... Um, uh, how how did you get your agent and your uh, your publisher? Did you have to go with all seven fairly planned, or do you say, "Wow, here's here's what I've got. I think there are six others." <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I've heard a kind of a rumor that you shouldn't go to a publisher, especially as a debut novelist, and say, "Right, I'm I'm writing seven novels, and I refuse." Yeah any less than that. <laughs> and actually, legally, I have a three-book contract, mm. but Bloomsbury want to publish all seven, but it was considered to be quite a big thing to put on a debut novelist, um, to have a, a legal seven-book contract. So I kind of said to my agent, you know, I wrote it so that it could be read by itself, but with the potential of more. And we, I sat down with Bloomsbury when they were interested in publishing it, and we kind of said, okay, how many would be in the series in an ideal <coughs> world? And I said, well, you know, it's it's you know, it's a lot of it's based in seven dials. There are seven types of clairvoyance in the book. There are seven um, the gang that she's in is called the Seven Seals. So you know, we were getting a bit of a seven vibe. <laughs> and I was, I knew it was going to be a big saga, kind of a, at least five or more, and like in an ideal world. So we eventually decided seven was was good. And just briefly, how did you get from um, the uh, the in isolation? Um, in your room um, with pizza, as you <laughs> mentioned to me earlier, um, and no social life. Um, to to how did you get your agent and publisher briefly? Um, well, the agent I have now, um, I had actually previously done an internship with him, and it was during that internship. Um, he's he's based at Seven Dials, and I got I got the idea. Of, yeah, getting a bit of a Seven Dials vibe out of this whole thing. Um, he's based at Seven Dials, and that was where I got the idea for the book. So I, I wrote it in about six months, and early, I think it was about March 2012, I, um, Ali Smith, who is a Scottish short story writer, came to St Anne's and was offering to look at people's writing and comment on it. 
So I kind of, I was absolutely terrified when I said I heard the first chapter of The Bone Season and I was expecting her to be highly critical, but she, she really enjoyed it and she said, you should send this to an agent. So I sent it to David Godwin, who was the agent I'd previously worked for, and he, he kind of, it, it was a painful waiting process because he kind of said to me, okay, yes, you know, I'll look at this. And then a few days later it was, I'm enjoying this, Samantha. And then a few days later it was, I'm really enjoying this, Samantha. <laughs> and then it was, can you come to London, Samantha? So it was this kind of, it was, it was quite a, a fast process actually. And then he took it straight to the London Book Fair and it was picked up almost immediately by Bloomsbury. So the actual sort of, the isolation to suddenly the prospect of being published happened in about two weeks. Fantastic. Well, we, we, will, we will talk a little bit more about that later. But James, what about your um, experience of your uh, novel coming from, first of all, from on, on the course, on the MST, and then getting your agent and your publisher? Yeah, I was extremely lucky um, because when I originally got the idea of writing Dodger, as you said, it was part of the uh, MST course. Um, I needed to write 25,000 words of something and I'd never had any interest in writing historical fiction particularly but I came up with this idea about the Artful Dodger and I thought well it would be a fun thing to do for a course and then if, it, if it's absolutely horrific and I get to the end of it and um, it's not very good then I'll know that it's not, that it's not worth pursuing. But um, what happened was uh, there was an end of year reading on the course um, and I'd already written, I think at that time, the first chapter. And uh, I did a reading, and there was an agent in the room, and, and which I'm led to believe is quite rare for end of year readings. Um, but he was not with us. No, no, not it's not. <laughs> no, no, not sorry, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he was from AP Watts, and he gave me his card, and I was really excited about it. And um, I guess that was the moment where I realised I was going to write the rest of it, because I really wanted to know what was going to happen next in the story, but it's a difficult thing to write a novel unless you get some sort of encouragement. If you're writing blind for no reason, what's lovely about a master's course is that you, you have a reason to write something. You have a reason to experiment and to try something out. If you're not sure you're right for historical fiction, you can try it. Um, so getting the agent directly off the back of the course was uh, a, huge, uh, a huge thing for me, actually. And uh, about a year later, he got me a publishing deal, two book publishing deal. So it all, looking back now, it all went very swimmingly. I couldn't have hoped that it would go like that. But um, yeah, it was really, it was really nice. Uh, so yeah, that's it. It all kind of came off the master's course, really. Your master's course. <laughs> our, our master's course. No, James is very modest. He gave a really cracking reading and um, was uh, uh, very well deservedly sort of leapt at uh, by, uh, by uh, John at, uh, at, at AP Watt, um, and a, a happy, yeah. happy tale. Yeah, no, it was great, yeah, I really loved telling it. <laughs> just, I, just forgot, <laughs> I forgot how lucky I was until I just said. I would, I would <laughs> just say, on the Masters course here in Oxford, we do have a lot of agents in the room. Oh, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. And we have, of course, we have wonderful readers as well uh, in, in our graduating students. Sam, how did you get from um, the uh, exploring genres to um, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the sort of upfrontness of uh, an agent and a publisher? Yeah, well, uh, just before I tell you, I just want to agree about the thing about encouragement. That, it's, mm -hmm. that it seems, especially when you haven't yet been published, 
Yeah. Uh, the level of kind of um, commitment and, uh, and sort of uh, just sticking to it that you have to have to, yeah. to keep going with it. It's, it's a lot. It's I mean, a lot of an art. Yeah. It's a big art. And I actually. find it hard to, like now, now, once you have a book published, I find it very hard to imagine how you manage to stick to it before yeah. you had it. <laughs> each level of each each kind of step of encouragement you get, you, you kind of immediately adjust you to need it. But, it don't you? but yeah, I mean, but it's saying it's uh, when you're kind of in the first stages, it's you know you, you just have to kind of hold your nerve. Um, yeah. But but um, but yes, in my case, what happened was uh, you know I, I, I wrote this book as I said over quite a long time, just by, uh, you know away by myself. Uh, but at the same time, I, I did quite a lot of book reviewing for a while. I, I had been writing re book reviews for the TLS for a, a few years, um, you know, just having started that by just writing to them and asking if I could. Uh, so, so I you know, did, did, did some reviewing there. I also wrote some longer things in places like the London Review of Books. Um, and through that, uh, an agent sent me an email and said, you know, I like your reviews. If you ever write a book, uh, send it to me. And then I thought, Good grief! I've got this book half finished. It's been sitting around for ages. I better actually finish it. Um, and and you know that, so that was a nice kick. You know, that it had some sort of kick to to, yeah. to get you moving on it is is very useful. And that that's what it was for me. Uh, I then spend the next I think about a year and a half thinking I really must finish this and send it to that agent. Um, and and eventually I did. And he read it and said um, I like it. Uh, it's not really the kind of thing that anyone is ever going to publish. Uh, so so perhaps we should just sit on it. But then he sort of said. Actually, there is one editor who might possibly be interested in it, and and he sent it out to that just to that one editor actually, uh, and and the editor liked it, and we talked about it. You know, we uh, you know we, we worked on it together. Um, he, he was an editor at Fourth Estate, which is a, a I think a fairly small fiction imprint, literary fiction imprint within a very big publisher, HarperCollins, and mm -hmm. I was quite surprised actually by how how much freedom the editor seemed to have. Just, you know, he, he, he could, as far as I could tell, he was pretty much able to just, you know, talk to me and we, you know, between us we could just do what we wanted with this thing. And, and it, it came out uh, as, as it now stands and, and, and that was it. Um, so I was l I, lucky as well. I mean, lucky in, you know, the, the sort of rather uh, flimsy chain of events that, that led to, to, to me finding the agent, but also lucky in that the agent really knew his stuff and, uh, you know, good agents do, you know, they, they, they will know the one person who might might be interested in publishing this book and, and they'll be able to send it to that person. I think that's a fantastically important point actually um, uh, in <coughs> that um, uh, as Sam said you might write a book and it might be a wonderful book um, and uh, a lot of agents and indeed quite a lot of publishers might think hmm I'm not sure there's much of a market uh, for this book but if you have um, manage to get with the right agent, someone who really believes in your work and is willing to um, uh, to push it and uh, get it out there and say, uh, particularly I think if it's uh, if it's sort of literary fiction, um, uh, the, for which as we all know there's a sort of shrinking um, market, which alas um, uh, I write. Um, so for this shrinking market, um, uh, so it's really, really important to to have your uh, your book with an, an agent who believes in that kind of fiction, who knows the right people um, uh, to uh, to approach. Um, I am. Um, I had the I had the same situation happen to me actually. I should just say when um, my agent uh, sent the book, as well as taking it to the London Book Fair, he also sent it to Alexandra Pringle, who is the mm -hmm. editor in chief of Bloomsbury. And she said to me afterwards, 
no agent in London apart from David Godwin would have sent that book to her because she's published only two other fantasy novels in her entire time at Bloomsbury. And the only reason David sent it to her was, you know, they knew each other very well and it was kind of on the off chance. And he said to her, I don't really know what to make of this book, but I really enjoyed it. And perhaps you'll feel the same. <laughs> and she did feel the same. So, but I think it's, it's very much about, you need to make sure you have the right agent and uh, preferably an established agent who knows which editors want which kind of books, even if they may not, it, that may not be their normal kind of book they publish. Mm. <coughs> Could I just add uh, sorry, just a question ahead, that occurs to me? I mean, it, it's I, we we sort of, we're sounding quite kind of uh, you know all about the established channels, which mm. I think is probably you know maybe that's accurate, maybe that is how it works. But I'm I'm also always struck when I talk to publishing people about how they don't seem to feel that they know what's going to happen in the future, no. um, mm. and I, you know they, they there seems to be a lot of uh, you know, confusion and and fear to be honest about how pub the publishing industry is going to to evolve. And um, it's, it's a simple structure. It's funny that you get, we've, you know, we've all had these experiences where there's a, the, you know, very expert people who know exactly how to do what they do and, and you do it very effectively, and yet they also feel they're in this kind of um, turmoil, of, you know, that there's something is coming down the pipe that they're they're, they're not going to know mm -hmm. how to deal with. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it's it's because of, um, uh, of <coughs> the market forces that um, uh, book publication is. Uh, is subject to. Uh, we all know what uh, they are, the shrinking uh, bookstores, um, the advent of um, uh, e-books, which you know, can be a great thing, but also the supremacy of Amazon um, as, as, a, as a sort of single channel, um, and the, uh, the abolition of the, the netbook deal, of course, uh, that therefore sort of pricing of uh, uh, books um, uh, in, uh, in turmoil somewhat. Well, I think it's, it's a really, really valid point. I don't know what you feel, uh, James, whether you feel um, that, that having been, the, the sense of having been published into uh, a fairly tumultuous situation. I certainly do. This, my uh, book came out you know, in, a, in a sort of very well-designed, hardback, uh, lots of thought, lots of money went into it, and then you know, it came out in uh, paperback and e-books are very traditional and but sort of shivering at the edge of what's happening there one thinks mm. hey you know uh, the abyss uh, it's opening yeah. you know <laughs> is what is one's next book going to be you know hardback paperback e-book what about you yeah Jim? no absolutely I agree I really get a sense that we're you know we're very lucky to have books published but it's kind of the trickiest and kind of the hardest time to have a book published really and to have it mentioned and newspapers, print, certainly print media, don't cover fiction quite as broadly as they used to. I think getting in a newspaper is becoming increasingly hard. Um, and yeah, and there's less shops and, and e-books as well are, are a big thing, but it's one of those things that's kind of happening. There is this shift from, uh, towards e-books, but it hasn't sort of happened yet, but is happening. It's kind of hard to know, really, whether if I was to write a third book, whether it would be sold exclusively on, on an Amazon uh, Kindle. I mean, you don't really know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of really delighted that I've managed to have a book published when people are still publishing books. And <laughs> I'll always have the object, even if future generations don't know what it is. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's a tricky time. Um, 
I do. I always feel that it would have been better to have been published five years before. I think. I don't know. I just think it would have been easier in many ways. But you know, I'm not complaining. I'm very lucky. So well, I think this image of our holding our books up and sailing into an uncertain future yeah. is rather. Uh, I think novelists today. One. The impression I get, particularly debut novelists, is that you are expected to be very self-promotional, whether you like it or not, mm. really. Mm. And I think. Not even, not even that long ago, I don't think novelists needed to do that as much, but we live in an age where there's, there's lots of books out there and you need but to get noticed. Perhaps we could just briefly touch on that question of reception and, and uh, pub publication, just, uh, just very briefly, before we open up for um, questions. Do you want to go uh, on, as you have the mic, uh, James, and talk Absolutely. about self-promotion? Branding. Uh, yeah, I mean, all that sort of thing is very uh, tricky. I mean, I wrote this book because it was the book that I really wanted to write as part of a course. So I didn't have any commercial ideas for it when I started writing it. I knew that I wanted to read it. I wanted to do the Artful Dodge of voice, really. I wanted it to be first person. Um, and I also kind of knew that I wasn't going to get everything done in one book. So I was very happy to sign a two-book deal. But then um, that makes it a series, and then you do worry that once you've done a couple of books and you're known for a couple of books, that almost if you do a completely different book, something different, um, it's almost like you'd be starting again in terms of readership. You'd have to kind of, um, I, I don't know, rebrand yourself, and that's quite a daunting prospect. So once you start, are you stuck with a particular... So, I mean, you shouldn't be, but there is a feeling, there is a certain pressures that you might have to be. You were saying earlier about your next book being very different. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was really interested. I think that's, that, I'm very envious of the idea that, you know, you can write whatever you want next. Well, I guess anyone can, and I probably will try. But it's a tough, it's a tough road to go down, but it's worthwhile because I think it's, it's great value. I think it's becoming increasingly important that novelists do diversify and don't always write the same thing so that, so that um, you know, they lead the way. Sorry, yeah. Sam, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, I was on that point. I mean, I and I guess you know the novelists that I admire and envy often are the ones like, like Ian Banks, uh, who, who managed to kind of have a, I suppose, a sort of identity, a brand, which yeah. which enabled him to do that. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I agree, and um, maybe I'm lucky in that my my book is <laughs> is not the first of a series, and and, yeah. and, and, and has, so I kind of have to go somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, on the on the thing about self promotion, I I heard an interesting idea recently. I'm afraid I can't who I can't remember who the phrase. Uh, came from, but it, uh, the phrase dandelion careers, that, that novelists in future will have to think of their, their kind of distribu distribution of their work like a dandelion uh, distributes its seeds, which is to say that you don't worry about making sure that everyone who reads your book pays for it. You, you worry about making sure that everyone who might want to pay for your book gets the chance to do so. Oh, right. um, mm. So you, know, you, fill mm. all the, you fill all the cracks in the pavement. Yes. Um, <laughs> which is, it just seems like, you know, is quite a kind of uh, a kind of turnaround in how you might think about these things, but it mm. makes sense you know, to stop worrying about, uh, you know, yeah. everyone who <coughs> reads a copy of the book necessarily, um, you know, handing over the money. But uh, anyway, that, that's, yeah. um, the, you know, see, it's, I suspect, you know, younger people may find that less of a leap than uh, those of <laughs> us who aren't totally digital natives. But um, the question of reception, though, um, mm. in I mean, the, the, the big thing that happened with my book, as I said, was that it got longlisted for the Man Booker Prize. And what that meant was that it just, you know, it, it got a certain amount of attention which it would not, other, not otherwise have got. And, uh, and, and what, what it brought home to me was a couple of things. I mean, about just about, first of all, about how, how uncomfortable uh, <laughs> that kind of attention can be if you're not 
really bright. And even if the reviews are all quite nice, it's still it's just a stranger. I don't know how everyone else finds it, but I, yeah, mm-hmm. being reviewed is a very yeah, uneasy experience. Yeah. Um, also, I, it, I, I did learn how much you know the reception of a book can change how the, what the book appears to me. Uh, that you know, I had never worried in the right, and, and with me, the, the specific issue was: is this a novel or not? Because it's it's really a cycle of stories. Uh, but it was presented by the publisher as a novel, and I had never worried about that. I didn't, you know, I, I just thought it is what it is. It doesn't matter what you call it. Uh, as I wrote it, but of course, as soon as it gets published, uh, and and then specifically as soon as it gets listed for a prize for novels, people become very interested in the question of whether <coughs> it is a novel or not. And um, you know, to some degree, that's a question about marketing. Question, you know, the, a, que- a question here you know, does the, uh, does this fit into this category that that defines this prize, um, and you know, it does, it does, it matters to people because, you know, there are cer- there's a, s- a certain amount at stake in terms of mm. uh, whatever status, financial reward. Um, so so I, was, I was just quite struck that that was a, what a lot of reviewers focused on. The, the good reviews kind of rate it as an interesting puzzle, is this a novel or not? The bad reviews said, this isn't a novel. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but you know, but everyone was quite interested in it, and it, it also, you know, it brought home to me also that there's a genuine question about aesthetics in that. And one thing I learned was that readers like Aristotelian unity uh, in their in their fiction, um, mm. and uh, which I do as well as a reader. Um, and this this book, uh, it, what unity it has is is quite kind of under the surface. It's quite it's quite hidden uh, and behind a kind of fragmentation. And and um, I was I, I was quite interested by how much that annoyed some readers. And yeah. but 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 you know, but others did engage with it as a kind of puzzle. Uh, so that was my. I think that that's a really interesting point because, and just very briefly, we'll uh, come to you, Sam, and then open Samantha, and then open uh, uh, to questions. But I think um, w- with um, my own novels, uh, Sam says the good reviews said, "Wow, all these strands in the novel are woven into an effortlessly propulsive whole," and um, you get some reviews uh, on Amazon saying. What the heck was this about? <laughs> you know, all these times, it wasn't necessary to have all these different stories working yeah. together. You know, so, so um, I think, again, on the question of the reviews, I'm very, very lucky to uh, get uh, reviewed quite widely and you know, decent reviews. Uh, my policy in reviews is you read them once, whether they're good or bad, you put them to one side. Okay. That's it. Yeah. Um, and move on. What about you, Samantha? Uh, obviously, um, uh, yours is a novel. Um, I think it is a novel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for me, um, I think branding has been not not something I chose myself, but has been a huge thing behind the novel's publication. And when I sent it to my agent originally, I sent it under an androgynous pseudonym. And it was because I didn't want people to judge me on my age, because when I got the deal, I was 20. And um, I actually realised, though, that when I spoke to Bloomsbury, I wanted to be an author who was accessible to her readers. And if you hide behind a pseudonym, it's very, very difficult to to do that. And, you know, I kept a blog. I, I still keep a blog about the publication process, and I wanted to be really active on Twitter and answer people's questions. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I... Uh, before I say this, I should say I have a lot of positive reviews, um, but I got a truly damning review in the New York Times. But the funny thing about it was is that the review wasn't really of the book itself. It was of the hype surrounding the book. And the book um, was chosen by the Today Show as their first book club pick. And the New York Times article accused the Today Show of picking it up as a people story based on my supposed fairy tale of, you know, 20-year-old writer becomes next J.K. Rowling or some such nonsense like that. 
Um, but yeah, I have found that really interesting. And the new JK Rowling tag has attached itself to me. Um, I mean, my publisher said they've never seen anything quite like that headline following a person around so much. <laughs> and it is quite bizarre because it came from the Sunday Times, who just said in a whimsical fashion, next JK Rowling in seventh heaven. But then, of course, the Daily Mail picked up. And it's like, they're calling her the next J.K. Rowling. She must be J.K. Rowling. She wrote this book as Harry Potter. Good for her audience. And I was like, no, no, please. But then by that time, it was too late. And by the time the news got to Australia, they were saying I was a multi-millionaire. And I was like, well, I mean, I'd like to be. But bizarre because I'm you know of course I'm, I'm not anywhere near a multi-millionaire I was not even a one millionaire <laughs> so it was just it was it was just amazing how the news spread like that and I'm under no illusions that the book <coughs> has probably made much bigger sales than it would have done had my story not been such a, an interesting thing and it was something I wanted to avoid avoid because I want the novel to be judged on its own merits not because the author is 21 um, but yeah, so it's kind of it's a mixed blessing, really, because you know I, I like I love that the book is selling, obviously, and that people are reading it. And the vast majority of reviews have reviewed the book, not me. But I think that particular review just showed me how kind of dangerous that hype can be. And if if I hadn't been, I've been fortunate to be reviewed in a lot, you know, a lot of newspapers and magazines. But if that had been my only review in the New York Times, it could have seriously damaged the book sales. And you know, not not really fairly because they were reviewing the today's show's decision to choose me as opposed to the actual merit of the book. Well, lots of things drawing one away from the writing um, once publication occurs. I think a good moment to open up for any questions if Paul uh, can whiz the. Oh, I'm not sure I what we're. Probably best to leave the microphone with you, and if people have some questions. Okay, yes. Should we sort of repeat the question in our yeah. answer? Right. Uh, Ian Potts, uh, mathematician of Exeter, many years ago. Um, what I want is to put the question, I think, to all three of you. Is there anything new in literature? Because um, James is talking about following on from Dickens and using Dickens. Uh, Sam, I think you were talking about multi-views of the of the story. I think Sam and Gregory did one here, based here in Oxford, and, and Hook and that. Uh, but the one that really got me, Samantha, is you, because have you read John Wyndham's Chrysalis and did that influence you at all? You know, I keep getting asked <laughs> I have read The Day of the Triffids, but I've never read The Chrysalis. And I, it's, it's kind of maddening because people keep saying, yeah, did you read The Chrysalis? It was an influence. And I'm like, oh, oh, no, it wasn't really. <laughs> but um, no, I haven't. So I, I don't even know what it's about. The same idea. Persecution of psychedelics. I'm so psychic, I'm, I'm psychic. <laughs> to be honest though, I mean, if you look at something like The Hunger Games, which is about people playing a game show on the TV, and it's the exact same idea almost that Battle Royale, which is essentially the Japanese version of it. But I think what Suzanne Collins does very cleverly is that she, she uses the same plot, essentially, to look at a different issue. Hers is a grotesque satire, which examines reality TV, while well, Battle Royale looks at its kind of brutal commentary on totalitarianism, I found it. And I think that it is difficult to be entirely original nowadays just because there are so many stories. And, you know, even, you know, maybe even if I had known about the chrysalis, you know, I, I, I still feel I would have written this because I think my, I, I don't, obviously I haven't read it and I assume that there are different themes. I hope there are different themes. Like based in America, for a start. Yeah, exactly. It's based in America. So, you know, hopefully it's different in, in other ways if the, the essential plot is similar. 
And um, I should point out there's like an extra layer of like supernatural creatures and stuff, you know, it makes it terribly unique. But um, Bullman? <laughs> I didn't read Bullman deliberately. I guess this is horrible. I didn't read Bullman. No, I deliberately didn't read Bullman because I knew he'd written about Oxford and I wanted to keep his Oxford out of my head. So I, I think that, I mean, having now read Bullman, I think it is, it's, it's completely, you know, dissimilar. His, his Oxford is still academic for one thing, whereas mine is a horrible slum that's kind of controlled by supernatural creatures, one of which is called the Warden. That <laughs> <laughs> sounds a bit like Oxford, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> is this based on your tutors at all? No, <laughs> no honestly, honestly. <laughs> but yeah, no, it is incredibly difficult to be original nowadays, but I think the most important thing is that even if you are combining familiar elements, you just use it to do something different and to make a different point, and I think that's, you know, that's the nature of literature, really. With a different voice, perhaps. Yeah, a different voice, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely, and I, I just wanted to add to that, that, I mean, for, for a, a writer, a, you know, trying to be a practising writer, I think originality is probably quite a dangerous idea to, to worry about too much, because, you know, if, if you sit down and think, I have to be original now, um, paralysing, you know, the, and, and also... Uh, fiction doesn't work like that. You know, fiction is a kind of ecosystem and it fertilizes itself. So, you know, the, um, it, it's so, you know, originality. I, 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 I suppose this is the kind of thing, you know, T.S. Eliot talked about amongst others, you know, that, that originality comes out of the tradition, it comes out of the, the, whole, the whole ecosystem um, of, of what the writer's reading. You know, it, it, it's, it's not, a, you know, it's not that kind of competition. It, uh, you know, it's the, the, the stuff you read, you, should, you can't, you shouldn't have to kind of say, okay, the chrysalids has done that, I can't do it. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah. Kind of, it, it fertilizes what you're doing. Okay, another question. Yes, please. Um, it's a, a comment rather than a question. I would have liked to see an extra member of the panel because it strikes me that all you three who have written fascinating books quite clearly and I long to read them, but you have not had to go through the process that most people who write have had to go through, and that is to submit to unknown agents and publishers. And I'm willing to bet that there are a considerable number of people here or have had the uh, really absolutely soul-destroying experience of sending in rejection after rejection. Uh, my best rejection, uh, in a way, was from, a, from what, your publisher, who sent me uh, uh, a rejection slip, and at the bottom it said, you might be interested in uh, books we publish, uh, how to write. at my extreme age, 
And it's, you're connected with it, Claire, but you don't know how yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I, I was just, one month ago, I was reading this book. I tore up the covering letter that I was about to send. I rewrote a covering letter, not doing the things he'd said don't do, etc. I sent it off, and within nine days, uh, 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 the same day as I sent off an email, the first agent I tried, I got, uh, I got an email back saying, ring me. And but this I'm is, on that. This is absolutely, uh, this is a wonderful tale, and many congratulations <laughs> on, uh, you know, on, uh, on indeed achieving uh, that success. But I would like to say that I think everyone around this table has um, in fact, had the experience oh, of sending to. Oh well, yeah, oh, we have so much time, um, uh, and certainly, you know, um, we've all approached. Um, uh, well, I certainly have approached agents and had them turn me down um, uh, or not respond. That kind of thing. So, so actually, we we are all. Um, uh, in that position, but naturally in this forum, we, you know, we're just uh, uh, taking taking a line through. But I think you wanted to say something briefly about that. Yeah, um, I mean, I know I was very lucky with phone season, but I, when I was 15, I started writing this sci-fi novel, and I spent, you know, about two and a half years on it, and every single agent I sent it to rejected it with that horrible standard rejection yeah. letter, which says. Sorry, this is not quite right for our lists at the moment, but you may be interested yeah. in this. So I, I just wanted to say I have been through that, and it really, you know, as, it, as I was very young, I was sending it to agents when I was about 17. It was absolutely crushing. And I did everything right. I got all the brown envelopes with the self-addressed self, no, what is it, the self-addressed self, but yeah, with all the stamps, and it was it was agonising, especially when I was a student. I was paying quite a lot of money to send these agents my manuscript, and I didn't really have any money. So, but yeah, just to say, I, I have been through it, and uh, I was I know how lucky I was with with the bone season so that I didn't have to go through. All you that. would say, keep on trying. Absolutely. Yeah, I, the first yeah. thing I say when people say to me. Samantha, what advice would you give to writers? I say, don't give up at the first hurdle because you know it, you will get rebuffed and rejected. But you know, just keep trying. And it just could be that the agent you sent it to doesn't like that kind of thing, or it's the wrong time for the book. But just keep trying. Or self-publish. Or self-publish. That's a, that's another option. And people do sometimes say to me, why didn't you self-publish your first novel when it was rejected? But I do feel that when you self-publish, you have to also be a business person. And I was not a business person. I couldn't have handled like all the things that my agent handles at, at that age. And I, you know, I think that you have to be quite multi-talented to be a self-published author because you have to do a lot of your own publicity, your own uh, sort of marketing, and everything. So yeah, but that is it's great that people have that option there. Okay, we have two, uh, I've caught the eye of two questions. Can we go with you first and then, um, I hope if we have time, with you. So please, first. Uh, two very short questions. Uh, one is, if you're starting to write a novel for the first time, do you, and holding up like that, or do you say to yourself, look, it doesn't matter what I get, as long as I get something down on paper, let's choose one particular episode, I get that and then work backwards and forwards. So that's my first question. The second question, very short, only needs a one word answer. Is 80 too old to start writing? No. no. <laughs> James, do you want to answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, that's an interesting question because I've written two books, both on Yarkle Dodger. And the first one, because it was part of a course, 
I started writing it with no idea that I would ever get to the ending or need to an ending because I thought it would just be something that had a beginning and would pass. So I never plotted it. And so once I started writing it properly, I didn't really think about the plot until quite deep into it. And that had an impact. Um, I, I think quite a good, it, the good thing was that I think that the book is quite picaresque. There's a sense of him going to various places on a journey until he gets somewhere. It did require a lot of rewriting though. So by, by the time I got to my final draft, I had to rewrite quite a lot. But I was prepared to do that, and I don't think that's bad. I think it's good to just write blind for, uh, not completely blind, but I had an idea of certain reveals, certain scenes I was heading towards. But even those, once I got to the end, I was more than happy to change. Um, with the second book, because this one was written for a publisher, I, I wanted to carry on with that technique, but publishers are kind of into you, they want a synopsis, obviously, <laughs> they want to know what they're getting. So you're kind of, for them, you, I, well at least I did, I had to write down sort of an eight page uh, plot. So the second book was far more plotted than the first, and the, the benefit to that was that I wrote it a lot more quickly. I, I didn't write so many chapters where I experimented with a certain thing and thought, well, that's not working, I'll get rid of it. Everything sort of had a narrative function far more. It was less picaresque, more plot-driven. Um, the, the downside is I worried that it would be less spontaneous, that it would, it would lose something. But actually, um, it's, it's, it's turned out to be quite a good thing. I mean, I, I, I don't know, for another book, I would plot again, I think. Um, it's a good thing to do, provided you know as you're writing it that you're just because you've written a plot and a synopsis and it's quite detailed, you're not a slave to it. If you come up with something better, just change it. I think it's a guideline rather than a plot. Thank you. Well, I think probably um, we, we've got time for just one more question. I have the same question. Oh, you <laughs> have the same question? <laughs> 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 uh, uh, do we have time for one more? I, I caught your it's eye. Quick. Back. It's Cassam, actually. I was very interested to hear you did the Open University creative writing. James. Sorry. Yeah, can you just tell a little bit about that? Because obviously that's something people can do who are working. Yeah, and well, I did it because I, I never went to university properly. Um, I left school and went to, uh, not that the Open University isn't a proper university, because of course it is, but I, went, I didn't do the usual route of leaving school. I went straight to work um, and really regretted it. And uh, I was in my mid-twenties and I just thought I'd love to get a proper degree and see if I can do it. Um, I know people who are dumber than me, you've got degrees, I'm sure I could do it. <laughs> but I had a job, obviously, and I was working uh, at a furniture retailer's and I thought it would be wonderful in the evening to work on, on literature because I've always loved it. And I, I found it huge, I mean it was literally life-changing because I had no idea whether I would be good at that type of thing until I started doing it. Um, and it really broadened my mind and, 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 and you know, I left my job uh, once I'd finished with a view to becoming a writer based on the Open University literature courses that I did, like the 19th century novel, I learned a lot about Dickens, and then the creative writing module. If you can do one module and you're interested in creative writing, I think it's a good one to do because basically you are expected to write short stories, uh, which are easy to do, not easy, but they're <laughs> easy to fit in with your schedule. Um, uh, poems, which I so struggled with, and um, pieces of non-fiction, so you could conceivably go on and do journalism. And I found the best thing about that particular course 
was that I felt I discovered what my style was and that what I was good at and what I wasn't so good at. Um, and it was really when I, that to me there wasn't enough of that. I got to the end of it. I hadn't written as much as I wanted to, which is why I went on to do the master's course. But I would recommend the Open University. If it's creative writing in particular you're interested in. How many evenings a week then? <laughs> um, well, it's not, there's two tutors, you don't even have to go to the tutorials. It's all, with the creative writing one, you just write on your own, and then you post them on a sort of open university website, and everyone else does that. So you get to see how your writing is different to other people's, and your own style and other people's own style. So it's a great option if you're working, basically. If, it's a fantastic option if you're working. I mean, that's really what it's for. It's a, probably not all it's for, but it's great for people to meet up in the evening. I did end up meeting with people and having workshops and uh, yeah I'd recommend it. It's good. And here's it as a basis uh, for, for <laughs> applying to our, our program at Oxford uh, which um, uh, I'll just give it a small plug uh, which uh, is uh, organized in a way which enables people with full-time jobs to, uh, uh, yeah. to take the master's course. I shall not plug anymore but no, I, I think <laughs> we... Sorry, uh, could you just think what the master's course is? Of course, um, it's the it's Oxford's Master of Studies in Creative Writing. There should be uh, leaflets out in the um, hallway. The alumni office um, uh, promised them, so Paul is nodding. Um, so there should be some um, publicity out there in the hallway. It's two years, part time, highly competitive. Uh, we have um, uh, uh, great students, and we're very fortunate in having a a very strong international application field. But if you have any questions or, or queries about the course, pick up a leaflet and there's, um, uh, there is uh, contact uh, in information there. So thank you very much for asking about that. I, alas, I think we have come to the end of our time. Um, and I, on behalf of our panelists, I would like to thank you all very much um, in the audience for uh, coming along, for your attention, for your interesting questions. Um, and um, I'd like to um, uh, give a tremendous thank you to um, uh, our panelists for coming and sharing their experiences with us today. James Benmore, Sam Thompson, and um, Samantha. W wonderful um, uh, to see you all. Big hand, I think, for...